Hello, and welcome to another episode of Latina Life with Jenna Malena. Today, we have two super Latinas joining us, Monica Ramirez and Olga Segura. They are pushing the conversations about the Latina and Latino communities to the forefront. Monica is an attorney and social entrepreneur, and Olga is a producer and an activist. And together, they are two of the co-founders of the Latinx House, a space and a place for engagement, activation, and community building opportunities. They just had a big event, the Raizado Festival, Welcome to the show, ladies. So excited to have you. Oh, and before I um, forget, Melena, sorry, she's not here. She's traveling. She misses you guys. Um, but, you know, hopefully we'll get her on the next one. So thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Of course, of course. So let's get to it. And um, we're going to start first with like, let's start with Olga. Let's talk about like how you grew up and what your family was like. What was the experience like where you were growing up as a Latina? Oh my God. Okay. So I was born in Mexico city. Mm -hmm. Um, my mom is from Panama mm -hmm. and my dad is from Mexico from a very small town in Rio Bravo, Tamaulipas in, in the North, uh, of the country. Um, and my mom is from, uh, yeah, Panama. So I grew up, was born in Mexico city. I went to Panama because my mom wanted to be with her family. And so mm -hmm. My first eight years were in Panama. So I grew up like talking with a Panamanian accent that I'm really good at it. And uh -huh. then after when I moved to North of Mexico because of uh, Noriega's war, we had to yeah. flee the country. And uh, we there was a coup d'etat. We had to flee the country and leave uh, not even to, we didn't go to back to Mexico city because we didn't have family in Mexico city. So we had to go back to, uh, where my grandmother was, uh, in Saltillo, Coahuila, a very, very small city in the North of the country, uh, three hours from McAllen, Texas, actually, it's kind of like mm. the border, um, mm -hmm. three hour drive. And, um, you know, it was, I think that it, uh, it was hard because, you know, as a young Latina, you're like, oh, why I have like this big cultural, like bicultural, like both different, very different cultures. And mm. so at a very young age, I had to understand that, oh, okay, Panamanians don't eat this and don't say this and they talk different. And, but, oh, there's this other, uh, we love music and we love like parties and we love to eat. And so there was a lot of like, um, a lot of beautiful things that uh, that I found from each one of the places and I really love. And it's funny because you always get to those eight first years of your life, you know, the cravings mm -hmm. that you get and it's kind of like the structure of who you are. So I have very, very uh, deep in my heart, Panama, but also Mexico. Um, but yeah, so that's and then and then I travel the world and I end up like in Los Angeles now I live in Los Angeles uh, <laughs> wonderful global global citizen that you are global citizen yeah and, and now going to Monica where was your experience similar to Olga's I mean what was your experience like growing up and, and your family like life and as a Latina too yeah no I was not I was not quite the global citizen that the Olga is. Um, so I, you know, I, I come from a migrant farm worker family. My family came from Mexico um, 
at first at, to work as farm workers and domestic workers. Mm -hmm. They were border crossers. They'd cross every day um, from northern Mexico and eventually, you know, moved to the U.S. permanently and started migrating from Texas around the country picking crops. So I'm third generation Mexican-American and um, I'm the first generation in my family not to migrate for the purposes of work. So by the time I was born, my family, both sides of my family had settled out of the agricultural stream in Ohio, which is where I was born and raised and spent most of my life. I actually moved away for 20 years to go do all the other things I was doing in the world as a lawyer and activist, um, and then moved back to Ohio about four years ago. So that's my context has been um, of a rural Latina in the United States um, who doesn't come from an immigrant family, but understands migration and, you know, rural poverty um, is, is bicultural in the sense that um, even though we were heavily steeped in the cultural tra traditions of, of our Mexican family, we also were heavily steeped in the reality of being a Mexican family in rural America where it wasn't so welcome to be a Mexican mm -hmm. family in rural mm -hmm. America. So, you know, I was of the generation where our parents did not want us to speak Spanish because it was more difficult and dangerous for us in terms of experiencing discrimination and things. And so there was this kind of um, bifurcation mm -hmm. of interests in that they wanted us to hold our culture close at home, but outside of the home, we had to be more careful because there could be potential consequences if we were to kind of be too outwardly Latinx mm -hmm. and, you know, in, in the place yeah. where we grew up. That must have been hard too, especially as you're growing up and you're going to college and you're starting your career to kind of not have an identity crisis in a way. We've spoken to some people that felt like they did have an identity crisis because, you know, Afro-Latina was telling us, you know, I wasn't really accepted in the Black community because I spoke Spanish. I wasn't really accepted in the Latin community because I looked Black. And she's like, I didn't know where I belonged. And so- yeah. How did you deal with that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think in the, the place where I was born and raised, like I never, I never totally understood what it meant to be Latina in the United States because mm -hmm. I was, you know, my parents sent us to a private school. We were one of five families that were Latino who went to that school. Our identity was very much underplayed because it was not necessarily the best environment for us to be outwardly proud about being Latino. So I went to school in Chicago because I had it in my mind that if I went to Chicago, I'd figure out what it really meant to be Latina in the United States. Mm. And then I got to Chicago and then people were like, wait, are you from Idaho or Iowa? Like people didn't understand that there were Latinos in Ohio. It was very difficult for people to even grasp that idea. Yeah. And then I, and then I, but that is when I had my identity crisis because then I had this sort of feeling of like, I wasn't Latina enough because my family never returned to Mexico. We didn't have a home there. You know, we didn't speak Spanish. I didn't speak Spanish that great. And, um, and I was constantly being questioned by my friends who were Latino and Latina. And that was when my crisis came. And that was really what brought me back home in terms of understanding that my cultural identity is just as much tied to being a Latina in the United States as it is to being from a farm worker family in the United States and understanding what, it, when you're a farm worker in this country, while you might have deep roots, you know, ethnically, culturally, sort of in our hearts, like deep love for our community, 
by design, migrant community members in our country are not rooted, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that experience was really what brought me back to this reality that my identity is so much about coming from a farm worker family. And, and, and as a part of that, being Latina and being from a farm worker family. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like roots is so important, especially for the, the Latina and Latino community, right? Um, because it can be hard, especially I'm first gen. So I understand it can, it's hard kind of for me. Now I've got my kids who are second gen and it's a little harder for them to have those roots still like go back, you know, to Mexico. And speaking of roots, Olga, you know, you were mentioning you had two cultures as well because of your mom and your dad. And I mean, we know, you know, sometimes the Latino community, it's like, if you're not 100% one, you're really not 100% another. I mean, were, was it challenging for you even, you know, obviously you're not in the States, but you were in Mexico, but having, you know, family from Panama and Mexico, did you have difficulty at all? Oh my God, yes. Especially going to Saltillo, Coahuila, which is a very conservative, very conservative city. Mm -hmm. uh, where I, I got bullied because I was yeah. speaking like Panamanian and I was very young and I was like, kids can be, <laughs> kids can yeah. be like really yeah. mean, you know? And then they were like, why are you speaking that way? You speak funny. And then you write funny because in, in Panama, you, you need to do cursiva. I don't know how you say cursiva, mm -hmm. like the letters mm -hmm. are like, you know? Yeah, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and then Mexico, you cannot do cursiva, like mm -hmm. so. It's it, it, there is a lot of like, and then games and places. And for me, my crisis of identity was very young age. I was like, whoa, okay, I don't know, I don't know where I'm from. You know, like okay, I thought that I was Panamanian, but like, wait a minute, all like these kids now are making fun of me, and what? do I need to like, oh, okay. I need to like copy everything that they, and adapt. So I yeah. like, suddenly I was afraid to speak Panamanian. I was afraid to say things. I was afraid, you know, things that they used to, or I was even the, my launch or my staff yeah. that, you yeah. know, I was like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to do that. Now yeah. I'm need, I need to bring tacos with a lot of salsa so I can be included and be like, oh, she's Mexican. And, you know, even when I was saying to them, like, I was born here. My mom and my dad told me that I was born here. I was born in Mexico City. Well, you don't sound like Mexican. So you're not from here. You know what I mean? So I feel that moving as an immigrant um, after, you know, 20 years to the U.S., it really got me when I found out that a lot of Latinas from so many different countries, so many different generations were facing the same trouble because they were like coming from all different countries, all different cultures. So I was like, oh, wait a minute. This is interesting. I want to learn. I want to get to know more of that. Um, and then have compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone doesn't speak English is because they were trying, sorry, Spanish, Spanish is because they were trying to survive and it was, they were in survival mode. Um, so I'm very, very related to survival mode because I had to adapt it to a very, very, very young age um, to be included. And, and yeah, so yeah, it's hard. 
It is. And it's hard, especially if you're trying to have a successful career as a Latina, right? I don't know how many times you guys have maybe have looked around and realized I'm the only one in the room. I have been there. I'm the only one in the room. And um, talking about adapting, it's like you have to adapt. And sometimes that's kind of pushing a little bit, you know, you become more Americanized, right? So you kind of loosen the roots a little bit. What was it like for you as a Latina and any challenges you faced as you entered the producing world, Olga? Like how, because I know, you know, that industry's tough. Well, first I started producing at a very young age. So there is like, there's a whole belief that if you're young, then you're not smart. Or if you're young, then you're not capable of doing things or there's always this question, you know, of like, oh, you don't have enough experience or um, so, and then as a woman, and then as a Latina with a very thick accent, uh, there was, it was, there was a lot of challenges and some of the movies that I produced, yes, you know, it was with Richard Gere and Jessica Biel and, but I am, I produced those movies because nobody wanted to actually produce the content about our stories. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. they were like, oh, there is no financial structure for that. But is the no, there's there's no budget. Like no one is gonna buy that movie in Asia or Europe. Like back in the day, 10 years ago, there was no streamers. So right. the it was all based on sales agents and international sales agents. So if you're doing a movie with Richard Gear, it was big and easy to sell in Asia, Europe. So all sales agents were like, oh yeah, then we'll give you money to finance, like to finance that movie because right. you're doing it with like a world. And they were not considering our actors well-known worldwide. And still it's difficult now, but but because of the streamers, I think that has opened a lot of doors. But, but you know, now I'm like passionate about telling our stories because now there's like people that are interested on yeah. opening those doors and it's still a struggle. But because we don't get the budgets, the same budgets that we get that other people get for other like stories, Um, it's still a struggle. But but yeah, I think that the biggest challenge was like, oh, no, that's not it's not big enough. No, that's that story. Nobody wants to hear that story. Uh, What is that? Like there is no understanding of the need for our community to hear our stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's so completely wrong. They don't understand just the amount of just people that are interested in these stories. These stories are universal and they're powerful and they're impactful and inspirational. And I mean, and also, I mean, just looking at it as a business, I mean, we pay I mean, just as much, if not more, than you know, other communities do as well. And you know, just going back to the industry, I mean, how many times has there been like, oh, work harder? hard worker, great, but no promotion, no thinking about you and saying your name when you're not in the room, right? <clears throat> That's also a challenge. And it's a challenge that I'm so happy seeing increasingly with women like you, with Latinas like you, um, putting together these communities where we can support each other. And then Monica, I'm so interested um, because you are a social entrepreneur. And I'm just wondering, what exactly does that mean? Were you a social entrepreneur before an attorney or was it something that kind of came together? Like how, how did that get born? Well, that's what people call me. Um, but it's just because I start things, you know, mm-hmm. I, every job I've ever had as a professional, I created. And 
I'm really lucky that I can say that because that is not the experience that most people have had. And I mean, that's come with its own challenges for sure. But, you know, from the time I started my first legal project in the U.S., it was the first legal project of its kind in the entire country to focus on the rights of farm worker women and gender discrimination. You know, so from out the gate, from, from graduating from law school, I just created my own organizations or my own projects because nothing existed and no one wanted to do that work. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't always funded. Um, and so that's what it means to be a social entrepreneur. A social entrepreneur is someone who is just like a business person would create a business and, 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 and there's a market for that business. There's a demand for that good or for that service. There is also a demand for social good and to cure some of the social ills that exist in our country. And, um, and I've had the opportunity to be able to secure support along the way to be able to create different organizations. I guess at this point, I've created something like five um, that I have been either involved in still or have set up and other people are running. Um, and it's awesome to be able to do that, but, uh, but it's also not easy. Yeah, I'm sure it's 24-7. Absolutely. Because I know you're traveling right now working on something. (laughs) So we appreciate it, which leads to the creation of Latinx House. So I'm super interested in how your paths came together and how this inspiration came to be. Did you want to talk about that first, Monica? Oh, I think you should tell the story because actually Olga, Olga found me. (laughs) So, and thank goodness. Love it. Thank goodness. Olga found me. I mean, I, I, um, it's so funny because, um, when it, what year was that Monica? 2018. 2018, right? So Monica, thank God she wrote the dear sisters letters, um, letter as all, as we Mm -hmm. all know. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I was one of the signatory members as well of Time's Up. And that's how we got together. Thanks to Time's Up. We met each other. Um, actually, Monica was speaking um, and talking about her bandana project. Um, and and she was just like, I was like blown away about everything that this woman was doing. And I was like, oh my God, I need to talk to her. And of course, after she stopped talking, everybody wanted to talk to her. So there was like a lot of people reaching out and saying, hi, hi. So I just waited and wait. I was like, okay, I got to wait. Like, you know, people are going to stop or they're, you know, just started like moving like towards the, like the exit. And I was like, oh my God, I need to like talk to this woman before she leaves. So I was like, continue moving and going. And, um, and, and then I, she stopped. Monica, I think you were going somewhere, right? You were running late. That's what she was going to the exit. <laughs> um, so I, I was like, hey, Monica. I'm like, I introduced myself. I end up talking to her. Thank God. Um, like just stalking her all the way to the exit and like just waiting, waiting desperately to talk to her because <laughs> I was blown away mm-hmm. about everything that he that she was doing. Um, and then that was it. I think there was uh, I contacted you through Instagram. I think I sent you a, a note and and then she came to Los Angeles. We had dinner. Uh, we found out in that dinner that we had our same birthday. Oh, wow. Sister. That's, that's how we were yeah. meant to, we were meant to be, you know? Yeah. Um, I was, I was, thank, 
I was running late. I had to go to a policy. We were trying to kind of create the policy priorities for Time's Up. Like this was so early in the wow, Time's Up yes. movement when we met. And so I, you know, I was, I was re- late. And, but, you know, the thing I love about Olga Segura, one of many things I love is that Olga Segura is one of the most persistent and passionate humans you will ever meet in your entire life. So note that everyone. And so she was very much like, we are going to meet, we are going to have dinner, we are going to do things together. And thank goodness, because we've been able to create a lot of really beautiful things together. So how was Latin House? How did that come to be? Was this over dinner? You guys were just, was there something because there's not a platform? How did that little idea come to be and then become this wonderful platform that it's becoming and it's still growing and it's still elevating and it's still evolving. Um, Alex Martinez Kondraki and I, who's the, the other <clears throat> founder of the Latinx house went to Sundance and we were actually, uh, Oh, we went to macro house actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were, uh, listening to one panel, Tessa Thompson, who is also part of the time's up movement we were like very tight, like the, all the women from the Time's Up were like kind of like following each other, supporting each other. So Tessa was like speaking there and we connected. And then we're like, Alex and I were like, oh, we should do a house here for our community. But I have to say that also Monica, Monica, Alex and I, within the Time's Up movement, we started organizing. We did two years in a row, right, Moni? Yeah. Yeah, there was a hub. We created the Time's Up Latinx hub within Time's Up. Yeah, I remember reading about that. Yeah. So we created that. And then by the third year, I think that after we went to that talk, Alex and I were like, okay, there's only one person that we can do this with. And in order to happen and to be actual the thing that we want it to be, we need to talk to Monica Ramirez. I mean, Monica needs to be part of this and we hope that she accepts. We hope that she's okay with it. And and that was it. We talked to Monica and that was the birth of Time's Up. Sorry, the, the Latinx My house. Man. Yeah, the well, Latinx house. But originally I said no. <laughs> Well, that's really? Important, that's an important part of the story. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if I have time, right? I was, no, not that. I always have time for good things. But because I was like, how does I serve farm workers and like farm workers don't know anything about Sundance. Like, why are we going to do a thing at Sundance? And so it was really just, a, you know, it, and it was an orientation of like, why does this matter to farm mm-hmm. workers in the United States? And like, why mm-hmm. does this matter to domestic workers? And so thankfully, um, Alex and Olga were open to the idea of making sure that it wasn't something that only stayed at Sundance. So we had to be able to take it other places and bring it. We, we didn't want it to be a thing where it was just filmmakers. So actually when we set up our first house, we brought domestic workers into the house yeah. so that they could talk about, you know, Roma and, and other things. And like, we never, mm-hmm. like part of mm-hmm. the work that we've done together, it's, it's been about, in some ways, it's been about blowing things up and rebuilding them. Right, like taking things where they're they they are in themselves inequitable systems or structures or even spaces, and recreating them to make sure that they're equitable. And and that's I think that's part of the beauty of what we built at Sundance and and have been able to take forward into these other spaces. 
I mean, claiming space, basically, you know, I, I had a movie at Sundance and I didn't have like a space, even though I, my movie was in competition as producer, I didn't have a house or something where, where I could celebrate or relate with other, you know, people from my community, you know, there was other organizations on the ground, but um, there, there was nobody on main street. Yeah, that represented our, like it was very difficult to have a whole. It's really expensive to have a house, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I understand why. It's just very expensive to be partners. We are like the first organization to become partners, uh, official partners uh, with Sundance Institute. Um, and I understand why. It's just is very expensive, mm-hmm. but we needed to take it to that level. So you know, people could find us, you know, I remember walking on that street on Main Street back and forth, trying to find a place uh, because I wasn't invited to anything, you know, like I end up in the pizza place, you know, and I end up like celebrating in the pizza place with my other like, you know, family members and, you know, because there was no nothing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I, I just like, if I will have loved to have a Latinx house when my movie premiered, because I know that everybody from our community, like we did it in the first year, Monica, we lift up and we celebrate every single filmmaker because it's really hard to like make a movie, but then have a movie at Sundance is like a milestone in your career. So anyway, um, but Monica really did. Uh, said to us, I, I want to make sure that it's not just about filmmakers. And I think that's one of the beauties and the most powerful thing about the Latinx house, that it just doesn't stay in Hollywood. It mm-hmm. doesn't stay in Sundance on South by Southwest. We always tried what Monica's lot knowledge and experience, we always tried to do to bring all industries um, and, and also celebrate people that never get celebrated or people that never get a space like this. They, they think that they're not, you know, invited because they don't belong to, and we got to stop that. Everybody belongs in, in anywhere, you know? Absolutely. And that's what is so, I mean, amazing about the Latinx house and the work that you both and um, Alexander are doing um, is the fact that you're bringing us out of the shadows. Like I have felt the Latin community has been in the shadows. I mean, it still is. I mean, it's still there's still a lot of work to be done, but that is what blows me away is that, you know, sometimes the Latin community, the Latinos are just not seen that way. They're not seen as a leader. You know, they're not seen as capable as other people. And I think it was, I forget, I think it was Monica, you said how, something about how the mission of this is to redefine the appearance of a leader. So when you said you brought um, you know, for Roma, domestic workers there, like who is a leader? Does a leader have to be an elected official? No, a leader is a leader in the community. Monica, you can say, explain it way more better than I can. I mean, that is so important for our work, you know, and, and it's not just for our work. It is for our lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. People in our community are dying because people are not seeing them as human beings. And mm-hmm. so at the heart of what we are doing, we are lifting up the power, humanity, and dignity of our people and showing the world what we have done and what we are capable of. And, you know, for Raisado, for example, our festival at Aspen that we just had, 
you know, we had farm workers there. We had domestic workers. We invited the hotel staff to join us when they were not working. We had people of all backgrounds and all positions because for us, you know, there were 250 tickets to attend the festival and every single person that had a ticket was a leader, is a leader. Mm -hmm. The farm worker who feeds us every single day in our community, they are just as an important leader in our community as the congressional representatives who are serving at this moment, making decisions about our lives and futures. And it is our work to make sure that people understand that. And it is our work to make sure that we as a community are also embracing that idea because that is how we will progress together as a community that is how we will close some of the gaps that exist. That is how we will save Latinx lives moving forward. But if we buy into this idea that only people who are working in you know, Fortune 500 companies or only people who hold political positions or only people who have created businesses or organizations, if we believe that they're the only leaders in our community, then there will be millions and millions of people who will be left behind and none of us are willing to let that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely not. And that's what's so wonderful about this festival, too, which I definitely want to talk about because it was the first ever inaugural festival that you had. Um, having the people that were there, like you said, from the hotel when they were able to go there. When, it's so important. It's like when you see it, you believe it, you can be it, you know, because part of that, too, is as a land culture, sometimes you just kind of like, OK, first gen. I went to college. The next thing is to get a job, get a job, keep a job, get a job, keep a job. But what am I thinking about? Right. You guys have taken this vision, right? You have this vision and it's more than just about getting a job and keeping it to make an impact. It's about how to fulfill that vision while making an impact as well. So how, how talk about, you know, the, the festival itself and the different ways that it has helped to open up the conversations that, you know, might impact, you know, policy, you know, initiatives, campaigns, social change. Do you want to take this, Olga? Money, now you go for it. The, the festival is Monica's baby. Um, it's really important. I mean, I'm just a stepmom um, and that I've changed, like helps change the baby and maybe cook lunch and all that but we you know this is she gave birth to this beautiful thing um and she's been working for the last two and a half years on it um so yeah go money sorry well if you had been in the space in aspen colorado that is land of you people that is has been enriched through the labor of the you people to the labor of latinx people but a place where, as you were mentioning before, we are completely invisible. We were completely invisible um, in a way that I didn't quite understand fully until we were there during our festival. Hmm, really? Being able to be in that space with people from the community, because we had community members who were there, you know, like Alex Sanchez, who talked about being on the stage, giving the welcoming to our festival he planned to stay that night at Aspen Meadows Resort and being in his position and remembering the days that he used to ride the bus with his mom an hour and a half each way to clean those rooms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It won't ever be the same for him again there. It will never be the same 
for the Latinx community in that area again, because together we demonstrated our power and we uplifted them as leaders in the community and leaders for our country. And what has been made possible through the coming together of people who are deeply committed to our community, who love our community, who love each other, is now people understand like how we're all connected. And, you know, we had Joaquin Castro there and he did a, a, a special ceremony for us, an honoring ceremony for all those that have been um, lost from gun violence and those who died from COVID and other, and other uh, tragedies that have happened. And, you know, and he helped to draw some of the connections, like our stories and the, the stories that are true about us and the stories that are untrue about us impact our lives, both of them, mm -hmm. right? Stories that are true about us allow us to feel proud and allow us to dream and allow us to grow and thrive. And that those are the stories that we tell each other about each other. And those are really important. Those are like healing in their own way. But the stories that are told about us that are not factual, that are, that are devastatingly wrong, there's a consequence to those two. And so people who are storytellers like you are, like Olga, like I think that there has historically been, um, unfortunately, there has not been the importance given to storytelling in terms of what storytelling means for society. But now that people understand that our stories are connected to immigration policy and to labor and employment policy and to climate and to all these other issues, like I think people understand like this is a this is a pathway forward. If we can tell our stories and how our lives are impacted on these various issues, then we can see what is gonna be required to change things on those issues. So policy is, is directly tied to the stories that we tell and the story, stories that are told about us. And it is our job as storytellers and as organizers and as people who understand policy change, we have to do the work of bringing those together to drive the change. And, and I think it's coming. I think it's coming. And I think that our community really understands that even though we have been made to be in the background, really, we were the foundation, always the foundation. And foundations, you don't see, you don't see the foundation of a building, but a building could not stand if it did not have a strong foundation. And we have been the foundation here and for many communities across our country. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, You've talked about, and you, you've started several different organizations. Obviously, Latinx House um, is, is amazing. What, would, what advice would you give to anyone who has an idea like this, who may want to do something like this, but maybe they're you know, afraid or they don't know how to start? If they wanted to follow in your footsteps doing this, what's the best advice you could give somebody? Just start. You know, I mean, I think that sometimes people think that they have to have it all figured out. Like they need to have the roadmap. Yeah. They need to have all the money. They need to have the all the plans. Mm -hmm. And the truth is you just have to have dreams, dreams that you're willing to act on. You know, I mean, Raisado was a dream and we didn't have anything to support it, but we built it and we made it happen. You know, every organization that I've created, it's been in its own way, a dream that you, we, that was put out into the world and thankfully people have caught them and then we've been able to build them. And so don't think you have to have it all figured out. Don't think you have to have all the resources or all the answers because, you know, it's a learning process. You learn along the way, but sometimes I think we, we become paralyzed because we think we have to know everything and we have to have all the money and we have to, you know, have all the expertise. And 
no one has that when they get started. It's what is accrued over time. Right. And then there's that fear of failure, right? Especially if you've had your parents who have sacrificed so much to get you what you could have to help you progress and become more successful and, you know, have an easier life. There's that fear that kind of holds you back a little bit. I mean, have you had that fear? I mean, for sure. You know, I mean, there's always a, my work has been high stakes from the beginning Mm because I was the first one to do a lot of the things I ever did. Right. And, but I always say, you know, some of us come from families where, where we didn't have much, right. Like, like some of us come from families that didn't have a lot of money or we were the first to go to college or we were the, you know, the first to start an organization or a business or what have you. And, and, you know, what I always have said is like, listen, when you don't have much, you don't have much to lose. And that's what we have to remember. If we don't do anything, we will win nothing. If you don't have much, you don't have much to lose. And you got to just throw your hat into the ring. And failing is also part of succeeding. Failing is part of learning. In my organization, Justice for Migrant Women, one of my other organizations and our team, we're an innovation organization. I think Latinx House is an innovation organization. And in order to be an innovation organization, you have to understand that failing is just as important as succeeding because that's where you learn some of your best lessons and then you course correct and then you try it again. So I think people need should understand the failing sometimes is part of the process and it is scary. But at the end of the day, I always knew that if I were to fail, my mom and dad would be there for me and they would love me just the same. And my friends would love me just the same. And I hope the people who are listening understand that if you throw your hat in the ring and if you try something and it doesn't work the first time, your people are going to love you just the same and will support you the next time you decide to try again. That's important for anyone going through any kind of challenging moments, for sure. That's so important to remember. And speaking of family, being a community and being part of a community is so key. And I think that sometimes we have so many Latinos and Latinas, so many different cultures that sometimes it's so hard to unify, but that is what is the brilliance and the promise, I think, of Latinx House. Was that something that you thought about when you guys were creating it? I mean, we, yeah, we definitely, I mean, even deciding what to name the house, right? We had a lot of conversations about what to name the house, how to be the most inclusive, how to be the most welcoming, um, because we wanted it to feel like a space that belonged to all of us. And I think that um, we understood that we just had to keep, we had to create space that we could gather. Because if we could gather, we could get to know each other. We could understand what we had in common. And from there we could build. And it wasn't going to come down to like, are you Mexican? Are you third generation? Are you from Puerto Rico? Like, just like when you get in a room with people, you start to see the similarities, right? And and then from there you build. And I think for us, that was always, like, we always understood that our unity would come from just gathering right? Like literally gathering to figure out what it was that we wanted to work on together and making sure that people understood that the doors were open, you know, and that we would figure out how to be in as many communities as possible and people should show up however they needed to. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. And I'm telling you, that is, that is why I am so excited about what else you guys have planned. And so Olga was just getting into, you know, what's next. You guys have, you just did the festival. Um, so emotional, so full of emotions, so full of just changes and inspiration, but just wondering what, what is next? What is next for Lanix house? What can, you know, all of our listeners, anyone who like, you know, 
hears about your next project, what do you have planned for the rest of the year? Or um, next year? <laughs> Five years. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, I think that we have our, like, uh, we're going to have our commitment always to Sundance, um, the Latinx house uh, has that. And also we we're hoping that, you know, we can have some incubators and platforms that have been launched this year to help directors um, and producers. But also, um, I think that we just need to continue with our commitments. I mean, the house is where we've been showing because our community is expecting us to be there um, and come back. Um, so Raizado is definitely one of them. Um, but uh, uh, I think that um, just trying to bring our community continuously coming together. If something happens, the Latinx house is going to try to like go there um, and then just be there for, for each other. Um, I, I hope that there's no much more houses. It's a lot of work. I have to say something that is very important is Monica and I, some, like our assistants, but we don't have a lot of like members or structure in the Latinx house. So I think that I always keep saying to Monica that we applaud our, like our efforts and everything we've done because it's just four of us, five of us. And then Justice from my women uh, team always ends up like talking and helping and supporting the Latinx house money. Yeah, we, it's, it's the two of us kind of knocking down doors, you know, and, and hopefully in the next five years, we're going to build a, a really strong structure to make sure that it's sustainable and we can continue to grow. Um, and it's exciting to think about the future because I think we have been able to accomplish things that have been really hard with very little support. Mm. And I think if we can accomplish what we've accomplished with such little support, imagine what could be possible if we had more, a yes. bigger team, right? And so that that's exciting. And Olga's work, you know, on the Adelante Directors Fellowship is so important. And, you know, we're starting to create content now, which is also really wonderful. I'm not the filmmaker, as you know, I'm the activist, but, you know, being able to watch Olga at work and, you know, working her magic, that's awesome. And half the time, I don't know what she's talking about because it's all film stuff, but <laughs> I'm excited to learn it, you know? Um, and I think the other thing about the future is like, we will have no future if we don't have a future together. Mm. And one of the things that is important about our work, I think, is that we want to build with people and organizations, right? Like the, the, there was a time in the nonprofit world where people really held on tight to their resources and, and there wasn't as much sharing and there wasn't as much collaboration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we are never going to be those people because we don't believe that is how we will win. So I think that the future for us means more partnerships, more relationships. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we're looking forward to that future. Whenever you need Latina life with Jenna Molina, Jenna Molina will be there for you. <laughs> awesome. Honestly, reach out to us whenever you need anything, something in person, something virtual, whatever you need. We need to talk about your next initiative or campaign. We're here for you forever you. because it's all about, you know, nuestras manas, nuestras hermanas, our sisters. And I just, I loved having you guys on. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you had to carve out time in your busy schedule. We'll have to have another conversation. There's so much more to talk about. Um, but, you know, toda, para todas las Latinas who are listening to us, besos a todas. Hasta la próxima vez. Um, y besos a ustedes. And then 
No, and, and, and also just like Monica said, just please stay tuned because we're about to release some sort of peace content. Okay. Uh, that is going to be the first content that we have ever made. So, all right, fantastic. And we'll make sure to include that on our podcast too. So everyone who can listen to Latina Life with Jenna Malena on iHeart, on Apple, wherever you guys um, listen to your podcast, we are there. Great. So thank you. Gracias a todas. Gracias a Thank you. And we're here for you too. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to more and more days and years of partnerships for sure with you guys. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.